on October 31st, 1517, a German monk named Martin Luther, he nailed his 95 theses on the uh, door of the castle church uh, in Wittenberg, Germany. And uh, that was his um, protests, if you will, against the sale of indulgences, uh, which the Roman Catholic Church propagated. Uh, and it was really their means of raising funds to build their buildings and to, uh, to fund their, uh, their false gospel, their false doctrine. As I was preparing for this lesson, I uh, was startled to, to see how, to learn how young Martin Luther was uh, when this event took place. Just a few days after having nailed the 95 Theses, uh, Martin Luther celebrated his 34th birthday. So uh, this past November 10th would have marked the 539th birthday of Martin Luther. So there is so much to this man, uh, so much more to this man than what had transpired, what had occurred on that day. Uh, our task this morning is, uh, is great. Uh, books have been written about Martin Luther and seminary classes have been taught about, about his life, his work, and his teachings, uh, but we have in less than an hour to devote to our examination of him. Uh, we will learn certain important truths about uh, Luther's Christian beliefs based on his writings and his teachings. Uh, and we will see that what was relevant for Martin Luther in his day uh, is relevant for us today, 500 years later. So with that, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for bringing us together uh, as your people to study your word. I pray uh, for your help that you will illumine your word um, as we examine it through uh, the teachings and writings and the life of Martin Luther. I pray that uh, we'd be guided by your Holy Spirit, that we would uh, be hearers of your word uh, and doers own, uh, as well uh, in the coming days. I thank you for your help, for what you will do, and may you be honored and glorified in our time this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I do have an outline for you that we will follow. Um, the first thing, we'll, we'll go back to the beginning in our examination of his life, and that is his, uh, his uh, birth. And I'm not referring to his physical birth, but rather his conversion, his spiritual birth. Now, it has been rightly said that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. And it, exactly this doctrine of justification by faith alone, that was the point of greatest contention of a personal struggle for Martin Luther. Luther's gospel journey began when he joined the monastery of the Augustinian order in Wittenberg. As a monk, he struggled greatly with the righteousness of God. Now this is Luther in his own words. For I hated that word, righteousness of God. 
I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Now, unbeknown to him at the time, Luther was angry because of his flawed Catholic understanding of the righteousness of God. Luther, based on his teaching and his upbringing as a devout Catholic in, in a devout Catholic household, understood God's righteousness as being active, something that he had to earn and achieve. So he was tri- striving to experience and have a revelation of a right standing before God on his own merit and based on his own good works. And he did so fervently as a monk and failed much to his misery and torment. So this was during his time, he was spent about three years uh, in the monastery in Wittenberg. But his dilemma only intensified when he moved uh, Sorry, uh, the monastery was at another location, but he moves from the monastery to Wittenberg. And he does this in 1508. He moves to Wittenberg because he's given a a position, a faculty position to teach theology at the newly established university. So in preparation for his classes, Luther would spend countless hours studying and exegeting scriptures. And uh, he would specifically spend time in the book of Psalms and in Romans. And it is this um, study, this particular passage in Romans, if you turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that uh, intensified his, his struggle, his personal struggle. Romans chapter 1 Verse 17, I'm going to start um, reading from 16 to give a, a context. For not, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Luther was trying to earn this righteousness, this right standing before God on his own, uh, through his own merit, and hence the struggle. So while studying scriptures uh, between the years 1512 and 1517, God by his spirit, through the examination of scriptures, illumined uh, Luther's understanding of what uh, the Bible teaches about sin and baptism. So his initial understanding, based on his Catholic background, his initial understanding of sin was that it was a weakness. And since sin was a weakness, it could be uh, modified, it could be aided and dealt with through, through sacraments. However, Luther, as he studied the scriptures, came to believe that, uh, that sin is not a weakness, It is not just an impediment. It is a moral root problem. It's a foundational problem. He came to grasp and understand the seriousness of sin. Man is not weak or defective morally. Rather, man is morally and spiritually dead, 
having no ability in himself to restore life to his deadness. And this is the understanding of sin to which Luther came to. And this revelation, this understanding of sin, also transformed his understanding of baptism. And by extension, not only baptism, but the role and function of the other sacraments of the Catholic Church. So baptism is no longer to be seen as a, quote, dampening down of one's one's sinful weakness and tendencies. If a man is dead in sin, he does not need a washing and cleansing. He needs resurrection. He is dead in sin, so he needs to be made alive to walk in, in newness of life. So given his newfound biblical understanding of sin, as spiritual and moral death, Luther understand, understood baptism as signifying death to sin and resurrection to life, to new life. Hear what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 24. I'll look at Romans chapter 6. Uh, yeah, yeah, it gives context, but I'll read that. Uh, you bring up a, a good point, but I'll read that as well. Romans chapter 6, uh, hold on a minute. My mistake. It's not Romans 6, 21, it's Romans 6, 4. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So this is the understanding that Luther came to of sin and baptism, and that was transformational, not only for Luther personally, but also uh, for the church through his teachings and his writings. So this made Luther critically reevaluate his understanding of salvation. What is salvation? And how can sinful man be right with God? So the date of Luther's conversion is much debated. If you examine Luther's 95 theses, which he nailed in 1517, Luther still held to a number of the essential Roman Catholic doctrines. So based on that, one can argue that Luther had not become a Christian yet. Uh, he would become a Christian later on uh, as, as he grew in his understanding of, of Scripture and what Scripture talks of, teaches about salvation and, and salvation, uh, sin and salvation. Based on his own testimony, Luther shares that his breakthrough occurred when he uh, was teaching through the book of Psalms on the second go-around. And uh, years later, Ru- Luther would reflect on his uh, conversion experience, and these are his own words. He says, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he through faith is righteous, live, shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives uh, by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. 
the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with, with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered, in, uh, entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. So it was God through sola scriptura, scripture alone, who brought about Luther's conversion from Catholicism to the gospel of saving faith. And it was his conversion experience that would uh, root Luther, uh, firmly ground him in scriptures. And it was his conversion experience that would lend itself to uh, guiding him and, and uh, uh, leading him as to how he lived his life as a pastor, as a theologian, and as to how he taught the scriptures, and how, as to how he, uh, uh, the various works that he produced, uh, which minister to us to this very day. Now, most of us are familiar with at least some of Luther's works. Uh, the bondage of the will would come to mind. But there is one work that Luther had, had done that far exceeds the sum total of all the other works. And we'll come to that here uh, in, a, in a few minutes. But before we get there, it's important we have a background of some of the events that transpired in his life, some of the important events that transpired in his life that ultimately led him to doing this, this great important work. Um, so after having nailed the 95 Theses, Luther uh, went on to produce other works uh, which undermined the fallacies of the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, they outlined, he also outlined the, uh, the doctrines of the apostolic Christian faith, which, was, which had been neglected for several centuries. So between the uh, years 1517 and 1521, there is this ongoing dispute, uh, ongoing rift be between uh, Pope Leo, Leo X and Luther. The Pope excommunicates Luther, calling him a wild boar. He issues a papal bull, uh, 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 um, commanding, ordering that Luther's works not only be shunned, but they, that they be burned, because they are heresy. And Luther returns the favor of the Pope by calling him the Antichrist and publishing various works against the Pope and against, uh, against the Catholic Church. So finally, it, this uh, rift comes to a crescendo. In 1521, Luther is summoned before the Imperial Diet of Worms. And a diet is an assembly of politicians and clergy that would meet on a regular basis to discuss various political and uh, ecclesiastical matters. So on the agenda of this uh, particular diet was Luther and his works. So Luther is summoned to appear before the assembly at Worms. So uh, Luther comes to this meeting with the understanding that great, this is a wonderful opportunity 
to publicly uh, debate, uh, to defend my works, and to refute the fallacies of the Catholic uh, Church and its teachings. And it was an impressive and intimidating scene. You had uh, Charles V, the young uh, emperor of, uh, of Germany. He was seated on his throne. He was surrounded by the uh, various uh, politicians and, uh, uh, and clergy. Uh, so there were a number of people, the various rulers of the land. And Luther was standing before the, uh, before the pope and on the table, just like the table before us, were spread out the entirety of his writings. So uh, much to Luther's disappointment and dismay, uh, there was to be no debate. Uh, Johann Eck, who was the inquisitor, the questioner uh, representing the Catholic Church, uh, had two things uh, for Luther to do. Uh, he asked two questions. He pointed to the works on the table, Luther's works, and he asked Luther, are these your works? And uh, Luther responded, yes. And uh, the second question that Johann Eck uh, uh, posed to Luther was, will you recant the content of your works? So uh, Luther was not prepared for this. He was quite taken aback. And he pauses and he responds back to Johann Eck and, and asks for an extra day, for more time, uh, for him to give a response. Now, we don't understand as to why Luther had asked for that time. Commentators, historians don't know, they're silent, they only speculate. Now, from Luther's understanding, he understood, he realized the gravity of the situation, the gravity of this moment. If we were not to recant, he would face certain death. He would be burnt at the stake, likely tortured before being burnt at the stake. It would cost him his life. So understandably, he needed time to process, to process this whole thing and to pray to, to, uh, for God to give him a confirmation uh, that what he has come to believe and embrace is indeed the truth. And indeed, not only the truth, the biblical truth, the true truth, uh, uh, according to God's word. He was going against all that he had known and come to embrace for all of his life, for generations. His father, his forefathers before him had come to believe what the Catholic Church had taught. And the people around him had come to believe that. He was going against the might and the will of the Roman Church. And he needed time to process this and come to a true belief and understanding that this is indeed the truth and I'm willing to, to stake my life on it. Yeah, Luther had the support of Frederick the Wise, who was, uh, who was his prince in Saxony and who had his support. Uh, and he had the support of the people. He was quite popular, but at the end of the day, it was his life that would be at stake. So Luther comes back the next day after having spent uh, a day in examination and prayer, and by the grace of God, he makes his stand against the power, might, and the will of the Holy Roman Empire. This is Luther's response to... Uh, to Johann Eck's um, 
question will, if he would recant from, from his work uh, or denounce his works. Luther says, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. So with that, Luther takes his stand and remains resolute against uh, the Roman Catholic Church. So after his famous stand, his, his life is clearly in danger. There's all, already a delegation from, from Spain that cries out, take him to the stake, burn him right now at the stake. So Luther, by the grace of God, is quickly escorted out of the hall where he had made a stand. And in the process of returning back to Wittenberg, he is kidnapped by uh, the men of Frederick the Wise, and he spends the latter half of the year 1521 in seclusion, uh, disguised as a knight. So God removes Luther during one of the most important uh, events of his life. It's, it's almost like I've, I thought of it, I uh, saw a parallel between him and Elijah, where Elijah had made a stand before Ahab and, and brought the news of God's judgment and famine on the land, no rain on the land, a drought on the land because of the wickedness of, the, uh, of Ahab and the children of Israel. And right after that, God takes him away into seclusion uh, uh, in, uh, in the wilderness where he is fed by ravens and cared for. But here, Luther is taken away in, in, into seclusion for almost nine months, a, a better a half of, better part of the year 1521. And it is in the confine of this church, the, uh, the uh, castle in Wartburg, that Luther commences on and completes his most important work. He translates the Bible into German. Now, uh, we gotta have to have an understanding or a context as to how important this is. With the, back in the day in medieval 16th century, not only Germany, but also Europe, uh, with the exception of nobility, uh, the exception of the nobility, the clergy, and some wealthy families, the vast majority of the people were illiterate. And the Bible was not in the, the vernacular tongue of the people. It was in Latin. So even if you were literate, unless you had special training in Latin, you would not have access to read the Bible and understand the Bible for yourself. So Luther's translation of the Word of God, he begins with the New Testament. He first translates the entirety of the New Testament into German. It's, it's quite transformational. Uh, and the people finally have the Word of God, sola scriptura, to themselves, to read for themselves, to study for themselves, to, to understand by the power of the Holy Spirit what God teaches about sin, about baptism, about salvation, about faith, about repentance, all those doctrines that they have been blind to, that they have been dark, darkened by the fallacies, the false teachings of the Roman Church. Now, Luther firmly believed in the Bible. Commenting on uh, Amos chapter 8, verse 11, where the passage says, I will send a famine on the land, Luther said, he is threatening to take away the genuine prophets and the true word of God. 
so that there is no one to preach, even if men were most eager to wish to hear the word. So Luther's understanding of the word of God and the church is that the church is the word of God is to be preached. The church is where the word of God is, uh, where the people of God are fed the word of God so they can go out into the community and be the salt and light that, the, that God had commanded them to be, had called them to be. So the church's power is solely in the word of God. Let's spend the next few minutes examining uh, an important aspect of Luther's theology. That's point number three. Luther's theology can uh, be surmised in the theology of glory versus the, uh, uh, the Latin word theologia crucis, or the theology of the cross. So first in making the distinction between the theology of glory and the theology of the cross, Luther argues that theology is based on God's revelation of himself to humanity rather than man's revelation or discovery of God. So theology originates from God and it is solely on God's terms. Luther says he deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and massive manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. So according to Luther, the theologian of the cross understands that God's revelation of himself to man is specifically and foundationally revealed in and through the cross. That is Christ's atonement for our sins and the suffering that God calls us to, uh, to enter into uh, as we walk in obedience to him. Carl Truman in his book, um, Luther on the Christian Life, says, of course, Luther does not reduce God's revelation to the cross in such a manner that God is not revealed elsewhere, but he does make it the fundamental criterion for the theology of the gospel, in light of which God's revelation as a whole must be understood. Now Luther says that person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the visible things, invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. So in contrast to the theolo uh, th theologian of, of the cross, the theologian of the glory, he perceives and understands spiritual things, the things of God, through the lens of earthly and worldly things. So the theologian of, the, of glory uh, has this perspective on life. Good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. And so this leads the theologian of, of glory, meaning the non-Christian unbeliever, uh, to a flawed understanding of God's justification. He believes that if I am good, then I will earn favor with God. If I am bad, then I will incur judgment from God. So you see, the theologian of glory can never understand or comprehend the cross and the suffering that involved the cross because the theologian of glory seeks to get glory for oneself. And he seeks to get such glory through one's personal efforts and achievements. He believes that God will look favorably upon his works and grant him entrance into paradise. So the, uh, this theologian of glory 
thinks to himself, where is the glory in the cross? Where is the glory uh, in the shame that is, uh, that is associated with the cross? Where is the glory in suffering? He doesn't get it apart from the grace of God. Luther didn't get it. You and I didn't get it apart from the grace of God. And here we stand by the grace of God, worshiping him. Luther also divides Christ's office and mediator into the roles of priest and king. So while on the cross, this is important for us to understand, while on the cross, Christ served uh, his mediatorial office as the great high priest. He offered prayers and sacrificed himself for his enemies. It was you and I who put him to death, not just the Romans, not just the Jews uh, of antiquity. Every sinner had put Christ to death, and he prayed for us, and he sacrificed himself for us, his enemies. And he inaugurated his kingdom and his kingship, not by routing his enemies as the Jews wanted him to do in routing the, the Romans, in usurping the, uh, the authority of the Romans who were uh, persecuting them, but rather he inaugurated his kingdom and his kingship by surrendering himself to them and willingly laying down his life on the cross to save his enemies from their sins. Luther also liked to use the phrase, the Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously righteous and a sinner. He argued that both Christians and non-Christians were simultaneously righteous and sinful. And this ties in, again, goes back with uh, his uh, teaching or understanding of the theologian of glory and the theologian of the cross. The theologian of glory, the non-Christian, was righteous in his own eyes as he, right, as he strove, strived to achieve righteousness on his own merit. Yet the non-Christian remained sinful before a righteous God and would at last hear the words of Jesus in Matthew, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, depart from me, I never knew you. The theologian of the cross, the Christian, has Christ's imputed righteousness, his passive righteousness that is imputed uh, by God through faith onto the believer. Hence, the Christian had the right standing before God Yet the Christian also has this inward struggle of justifying oneself by self-righteousness. Even though we are believers, we still have a tendency to, uh, to fall into that struggle of somehow it, my righteous deeds earn, earn me extra favor with God. And, uh, and that's where uh, Luther says that we're simultaneously righteous and sinful. Uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 22. Paul explains this struggle. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. 
So the Christian, though perfectly righteous before God, in his right standing uh, before God, he continues to sin and repent of his sin till the day that is glorified. So there is this struggle with sin. We have, as, as, as sinners justified before God, we have a right standing before God. Uh, no amount of sin will take that away from us. That is a, 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 done, a work that is done and accomplished by Christ on the cross. And yet, we are putting to death uh, the sin that we struggle with. And we are being sanctified uh, by the means of grace in our lives. And that struggle will continue, albeit it will get better and better as we are sanctified by the grace of God. Just as Christ emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a cross and became obedient uh, to death, even death on a cross, the theologian of the cross looks to Christ as his model for suffering and takes up his cross and follows Christ, come what may. Another theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, gained great insight from Luther's teaching. It provided him the biblical perspective on suffering to withstand Hitler and the Nazi regime. Bonhoeffer would die by hanging at the, at the hands of the Nazis. Another important teaching of Luther is uh, uh, the priesthood of all believers. Now, during the, Luther's early Reformation battles, during the uh, years 1518 and 1519, there was a general distrust and dislike uh, of what the formal priesthood of the Roman Catholic Church had come to represent. There was also this culture and uh, mindset that was propagated by the Roman Church that they had made a distinction between the clergy and the laity. So the clergy, according to, according to the Catholic Church, had a special calling. Theirs was a noble profession that was more favorable before God. The laity, a common man like you and I, on the other hand, we had a normal calling. It was, our work was mediocre, it was mundane, and that we just went about and performed our daily duties without having the special distinction of being uh, uh, one of the clergy. Luther, on the authority of uh, Holy Scriptures, specifically 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the, excellence, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So based on this passage, Luther redefined priesthood as belonging to all Christians and not just the clergy. This teaching is sometimes misunderstood as meaning that uh, we no longer have to have any offices uh, in the body of Christ, that the Christian uh, does not have to be accountable uh, to one another because uh, I am my own priest based on this passage. But this was not what Luther's teaching uh, this was not the intention or the meaning of his teaching at all. Uh, as we see in scriptures, both Paul and Peter, they outline the qualifications for officers in the church. The, and the one another commandments in the Bible exude accountability within a covenant community. Michael Reeves writes, 
But for Luther, the priesthood of all believers is never about being alone. It is always about being together as a united church. It is a responsibility as well as a privilege, a service as well as a status. God has made us one body, or using an image Luther uh, was found of saying of one cake. We were one cake. <laughs> and our unity is displayed in our mutual love. Luther describes the church as communion sanctorum, a community of the saints, end quote. So in, in redefining the priesthood of all believers, Luther, he also relocated the places of sacrifices made by believers. The sacrificial offering where God commands us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, is not made at the altar, but rather in every sphere and context of our lives. Such sacrifices to God, which are holy and acceptable, are, are made in the spheres of our work, our, our home, our, uh, the school, the playground, our community. Uh, all of these are spheres of our lives, context in which we make to God a, an acceptable sacrifice, being a priest unto God. If, we're done, if they're done, our roles and responsibilities are fulfilled uh, to the glory of God with the right intentions of our heart. Luther says, what seems to be secular works are actually the praise of God and represent an obedience which is well-pleasing to him. Housework may have no obvious appearance of holiness, yet those very household chores are more to be valued than all the works of monks and nuns. Now, Luther had other works that he had done. He had uh, written a larger catechism and a shorter catechism. The shorter catechism was for children uh, to teach them the doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, he was also a prolific hymn writer. Uh, we sing his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He penned that hymn uh, while the Black Plague was ravaging Europe. Many had died, many had perished, many had fled uh, 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 from the, the cities, from the towns to the, village, to, uh, the rural areas uh, for their safety, but Luther and his family stayed behind and labored and served uh, the, uh, the sick and the dying in their community. And it was in this context of death that Luther Hence, this hymn, A Mighty Fortress of our, uh, is Our God, based on Psalm 26. Luther also was, uh, cared deeply about education. He uh, uh, spearheaded uh, schooling for children, not only for boys, but also for girls, which was unheard of back in medieval uh, Europe. Um, and he also, uh, through his work on... Um, the name of the work kind of slips my mind now, uh, but it was written to the Ger German nobility, and in, in that uh, work, he pleads with the, uh, the German princes uh, to examine for themselves Holy Scripture and the doctrines that he has been teaching, that he has been writing about. 
it has been neglected by the Catholic Church. It had been uh, uh, ruled um, uh, heresy by the Catholic Church. So he uh, pleads with uh, the state. Uh, back, back then, there was no separation of church and state. The church, the Roman Catholic Church, what yielded, wielded the power of the state. So he had, it had a lot of power. And it's to Luther's teaching and Luther's work that we've, uh, we have the separation of church, of st uh, church and state as we uh, come to understand it now. Uh, so, so I will end there with application. I know it's a little choppy, there was a lot to digest, a lot to take in, but that's Luther for you in one hour, or less than an hour. So how do we apply what we have learned about Luther's teachings and his writings? The first thing uh, I would urge us is to hold on to sola scriptura. In this day and age, in this 21st century, the age of critical race theory, transgenderism, Black Lives Matter, it is easy for us to listen to the world. Is it easy for us to, uh, to take in what the world would have us uh, uh, teach ourselves and teach within the body of Christ? But Luther would urge us sola scriptura. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We have various challenges today, and every single one of them must be dealt with, addressed by the word of God. Word of God. And the priesthood of all believers. So as we go about our day, be it fulfilling our roles as husbands, wives, children, uh, professionals, teachers, doctors, whoever, whatever profession that we're involved in, uh, we, have to, we have to remember that we are, uh, in what we're doing, we are serving as priests. We're doing this to the glory of God, first and foremost. We are giving to God uh, a holy and acceptable sacrifice, and that is our witness. First and foremost, we witness by word of mouth, but also we witness through how we live our lives, how we do our work, how we live out uh, our responsibilities, uh, fulfill our responsibilities in our community. So that is all I have. We have a couple of minutes for uh, any questions or comments. That's right.
That's right. Without his permission, which is a big taboo, and an erroneous thing to do, nobody approached him if they should have, because he might have not let them, because he was still, uh, I think, a professor of moral theology is what he was sent to Wake University to teach a religious theology. Right, right. Right. So the Leo the Tenth was a big deal pope in history. He had a lot on his plate. He had all these advisors advising him what to do about Luther. Luther was five for five years. He's still trying to clean up the church because he's got these wacko guys advising the pope, and he's trying to get it to the pope's attention so he can get rid of the indulgences, which was just a money scam. And uh, that's what he was working on. God started working on the corruption of theology that was present at the time. And I, I got to wrap it up in prayer shortly. But I, I see your point. He brings up an a, a, a important point. Oh, remind me your name, I'm sorry. Jim, Jim, the printing press. In the providence of God, the printing press was already available and was through the printing press that the German translation of the Bible and other works of Luther were able to be published and propagated, made available to uh, a lot of people, a lot of people through, not only through Germany, but the, throughout Europe. And that's how, uh, how the work of the Reformation spread. With that, let me go ahead and close this in prayer. Thank you, Jim. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time that we could uh, study your word together, uh, examining the life of Luther. Lord, as we um, continue to uh, prepare our hearts for worship, I pray that you would uh, help us to uh, remember that we have been saved by your grace and to live our, our lives out as theologians of the cross and as priests, make, living our lives as holy sacrifices in all that we say and do. Uh, I pray that you would continue to bless the rest of our time in worship that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.